All right, before um, we get going, we're going to dive into looking at Palm Sunday and some of what that means. But before we get going, I'm just going to read um, a passage from Scripture. Um, I'm reading from Mark chapter 11. This is Jesus entering Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So as we said, today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Holy Week. It's the first day of this week as we walk towards Easter. It's a bit of an odd day. It's been described as like a, the Trojan horse of the Christian calendar. You sort of start the day, we get lured in by all this festivity and, and celebration. And then before we know it, we are being assaulted by the drama of Holy Week. It's like we come in prepared for a party and we go out going to a funeral. Palm Sunday is the start of this remarkable and dramatic week. The betrayal of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday. His torture and death on Good Friday, followed by this pause, the darkness of Holy Saturday. And then Easter Sunday, this remarkable, cosmic, shaking, conquering of death and sin. It's a week of really high highs and really low lows. The depths of darkness and the heights of victory. And it starts with today. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, surrounded by his disciples with crowds cheering him in. I don't know if you have any of your own associations with Palm Sunday, but I'm going to welcome you into a little bit of uh, my personal Palm Sunday history. Um, so picture, if you will, it's the early 90s in a village in Devon. I'm a little kind of 12-year-old girl. And my dad is the vicar of the local village church. And every Palm Sunday, we'd meet on a nearby housing estate with, hold it, a real donkey. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Someone would have bought some of those really cheesy 90s kind of church banners to wave around. At some point, there was even an investment in a portable amp and mic that we could wheel around the streets. And we'd, we'd set off, there was like maybe 30 or 40 of us, and we'd, we'd sit, stand on a sort of appropriate street corner. My dad might say a prayer. Somebody would do a reading. And then we'd sing a song of worship, which, this is the best bit of the day, I would lead on my flute. Yeah, right. Not quite the, uh, the appropriate instrument for leading worship. But I'd lead this song on my flute, which involved somebody standing with a music, piece of music in front of me, someone else waving an umbrella somewhere in the vicinity of my head. 
And then as we headed towards the church, this kind of procession would gather up people, latecomers, people who didn't want to be seen walking through town with a donkey. And by the time we got to the church, there'd be a crowd of us and we'd enter through this ancient village church, this, these bell tower doors. And some worried church warden would have laid the carpet with newspaper. And this donkey would be led up to the front where he would carry kind of poo just to the left of the newspaper um, and then be whisked rapidly out of sight. It's, it's an incongruous, slightly comical, slightly ridiculous image. And yet it's something that is actually quite moving because it, it reflects something of the messiness of Palm Sunday. There's sort of all this profound imagery, there's all this joy and celebration and it's all just happening on busy city streets. In the midst of everyday life, on street corners, around pub tables, the truth is being proclaimed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This crowd are hyped up. They're they're celebrating. The Messiah is here. He has come to save us. Everything is going to be different. They're putting all of their hope and faith on this rabbi riding into Jerusalem. But of course, the story doesn't end there. And before the week has ended, in just a few days' time, this very same crowd will be screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And the Gospel of Mark, which is where our reading was from today, it's a gospel of sort of action and activity. And it it's all tells the story of Jesus's earthly ministry through, through the image of a clash of two kingdoms. A clash that reaches its climax at Easter, light versus dark, death versus light, tragedy versus triumph. And we're going to take a look at what those two kingdoms mean. But one of the ways in which we see these two kingdoms at work is through the fickleness of the crowd. Today on Palm Sunday, they're crying out with songs of worship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in a few days, crucify him. And in here's the thing, we are, each one of us, at the very same moment, a voice of praise and worship and a voice of rejection. We are at the same time people of faith, declaring Hosanna and people of cynicism and unbelief. We're a mixed bag. In one moment, we're the, the, the disciple Jesus loved, leaning our head on our beloved teacher. Then we are Peter, running away in fear and denial, afraid for our safety. Then we're Judas, cynical and selfish, caught up in greed and fear. And we are Mary, pouring out the oil of love and devotion. We have all of this at work within us, all of the time. This is the reality of the human condition. We often use um, the word ambivalence to, to mean a kind of state of being slightly unbothered or unsure about what you want. So like... What do you want for supper, pizza or a burger? Do I want to get the Piccadilly line or the Victoria line home? But actually, the word ambivalence means to hold different, even contrasting, contradictory opinions and feelings at the same time. So to love and to hate. To have good and darkness within us. To know that on our very best days, there is still sin, pain, anger within us. How many times have you walked out of a church service and then got annoyed with someone walking too slowly in the tube station? How many times do we listen to messages of loving your neighbour but then go and gossip about our work colleagues or get angry at loved ones or ignore the vulnerable person on the street corner? 
How many times do we meet with Jesus in worship and then go home and fall straight back into the same patterns of addiction and behaviour? This part of the narrative of Easter causes us to take a good look at ourselves, to see our own ambivalence, to know that in one breath we can cry Hosanna and in the very next crucify. I'm going to let you into a little behind-the-scenes look at preparing a sermon. I was once given a piece of advice about writing talks, and this quite seasoned preacher said to me, "Um, don't tell me what to believe. Show me why believing it has changed your life. In other words, don't stand on the stage and give dictates and commands about how to live life or, or what's true, what's not true, what's right. Instead, show how believing in God, believing in Jesus has changed your life. So we get to a talk like this one, and the diagnosis is clear. The human condition is one of ambivalence. To both want to follow Jesus and to run away, to be devoted and in love, to be Judas and John. And I know how true that is in my own life, how true it has been, and how true it still is. And so I don't have a nice story about how there was this one time in camp, well, I don't know why I then, uh, when the Holy Spirit met me in power and I've never since had a moment of doubt in my life. I can't say once I was ambivalent, but now I am certain. I am a walking contradiction. I love Jesus with all of my heart and I yearn that you too would know something of the healing and freedom that I've experienced and still I'm caught up in sin, darkness and patterns of behaviour that draw me away from God. So what is the hope for the diagnosis? Paul writes in Romans 7, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched person that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God that it isn't about us. Thanks be to God that it isn't about my ability to get myself free. It's not about my self-discipline. It's not about how many hours I spend praying. It's not even about my love. It's all about Jesus. It always has been and it always will be only Jesus. Jesus who saves us. Jesus who changes us. Jesus who takes my broken, ambivalent heart, caught up in pain and sin, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, transforms it into something beautiful. And Jesus who pursues us. You know, Peter denies Jesus just hours before Jesus is is killed. And then a few days later, Peter, a broken man, meets with Jesus on the beach. And in John 21, we read of how Jesus goes to the disciples and draws Peter aside for a conversation which will redeem, restore, allow Peter to repent. It was Jesus who pursued Peter. This Jesus who, even after we cry crucify, continues to not just welcome us back, but pursue us. And so the Easter story forces us to confront our own ambivalence, but it also reminds us that it is the work of God that changes us. Judah Smith said, um, the greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, or your focus. 
Your greatest challenge is believing and living the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming and so inclusive? Let me have your sin, my child. I, um, I was given this, this cross uh, about a decade ago. I think we can all agree. It's a nice cross, but it, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing special. Hello if you're watching. Uh, it, <laughs> my spiritual director gave it to me about a decade ago. And um, he used to have it on, his, on the shelf in his office. And whenever we'd be sitting there and I'd be like getting caught up about something or stressing about something, he'd just point to the cross and say, oh, it's just about this wooden thing behind me, isn't it? Whenever I was caught up in grief or darkness or sin or just in doubt, he'd just point to the cross and say, I've got no other better answer. It's just the cross, isn't it? And at one point when I was really struggling and I was wrestling with how to believe in the goodness of God in a world that just seems so full of pain and suffering that I didn't know if I could see a way out. And this friend would just keep almost incessantly pointing to the cross and saying, I've got nothing else to say, no answers to give except the cross. And he gave me this, this one day to take home. And ever since then, whenever I've reached a point, whenever I've felt, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. Whenever I'm aware of my own fickleness or caught up in something, I look at it and I think, I've got nothing else, just, just the cross. Could it be that there is a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming? Could it be that the cross really is enough? that his grace really is sufficient. That Jesus who sees the very depth of my unloveliness, who knows my deep brokenness, the extent of my ambivalence, instead of withdrawing, chases me all the way to the cross. The diagnosis that we are caught up in sin, drawn towards the things of this world, and the antidote that by the grace of God we are changed. Just before the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus is having an encounter with someone on the side of the road. It's a father who's gone to Jesus um, for healing for his son. And Jesus has this conversation um, with the father. And, in he, and the father says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I want to cry Hosanna, but too often find myself caught up in the chant of crucify. Thanks be to God who delivers me. This internal reality of these two kingdoms at work within us is a reflection on the two kingdoms that Mark is talking about in the gospel. This kingdom of sin and death and pain and suffering. And on the other hand, this kingdom of light, the kingdom of God that is making all things new, drawing all of creation into a story of redemption. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was communicating something very specific about this kingdom and specifically about the type of king that he is. So I wonder if I ask you, if I were to ask you to think about the most powerful thing or person that you can, I wonder what would come to mind. Maybe some kind of big piece of weaponry or, or a leader from history or a world leader. Maybe someone with loads of money or loads of Instagram followers. The Bible tells a very different story about power. The Bible situates power 
in the hands of David and not Goliath, in the persistent widow, not the judge, in the love of the outcast, not the status of the wealthy. The Bible tells a story of a God who gives up his power, empties himself in love. And when I think about power, I think about a friend of mine called Rose. She lives in Namatala in Uganda, which is um, one of the, the largest slums in East Africa. And there are about 50,000 people that live here um, in makeshift homes, no electricity, no running water, no education. Rose lives in this tiny one-roomed hut where she cared for um, at any time somewhere between 10 and 30 people. Some of them were related, some were just lost souls that needed a place to live. Rose was living in Namatala and working as a cleaner when she met another friend of mine who ran a development agency. This person saw something in Rose of God, of something in the way that she cared for the community. And so they began employing her to lead a ministry in the slum. And so for the first time in her life, Rose was earning a decent salary. This meant she could move out of the slum, build a nice house, start to live a life of status. Except that she didn't. She stayed in Namatala slum, caring for more and more people, only building extensions so that she could house more lost souls. She talks about how much love she's been shown by God, how much grace and compassion she's had, how everything she has comes from him. She is a woman of power, an income, a stable job, the respect of her community, but she lives this remarkable generosity, acquiring more and just giving more away. And that's true power, to give of ourselves for those around us, to know the outpouring of grace that we have received from God and to give from this overflow. And I think Rose understands better than I probably ever will what power really is, what it really means to love others in the kingdom of God. Every time she loves someone, Every time she feeds or houses someone, the kingdom breaks in. Jesus intentionally and deliberately enters the city where he will meet his destiny, choosing not to ride the war horse of a military conqueror, not even some kind of beautiful animal that a political leader might ride, but a lowly beast of burden, fulfilling a, a prophecy in, from Zechariah, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And Jesus is dramatising two things here. He's making an intentional point. He's saying, yes, he is the Messiah that the prophets foretold. He is king. But he is not the sort of Messiah that people were expecting. He's a king of a cross, not a palace. This Passover week that they were gathering to celebrate was a time to remember the liberation of the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery. It was, it was remembering, harking back to the Exodus story, this great moment of liberation when the Jewish people escaped from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. It had come to be both a celebration of what was and a moment to long for what was to come a longing for our Messiah in the line of David who would come and liberate the people once again, who would take power back from Rome and give it back to the Jewish people, who would restore Jerusalem, who would bring liberation. That was the type of king that people wanted, a military leader, a conquering hero. And instead, they got a man on a donkey. It is a curious sight when you think about it, this procession. 
a king riding in on a comical animal. But also remember who his followers were. This ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes and beggars and outcasts. It has this sort of ridiculous feel to it. But Jesus planned the whole thing. This was a way of demonstrating just what type of a king he is. He is teaching that his kingdom is utterly different from earthly empires and has nothing in common with worldly pomp. He enters the city in poverty, loved by the outcasts of society. In Luke's account of this moment, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, we read, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. This was one, one of only two times in all four Gospels when the writer of the Gospel is, it makes the point that Jesus is moved to tears. And the thing is, Jesus wasn't weeping for himself. These aren't tears of, of fear for the pain that he was about to endure. These are tears for the city. He is weeping over the people who will soon be calling for his blood. This city was supposed to be a symbol for the earth, a place of devotion and worship, blessed to be a blessing. And it had become a place of corruption. Jesus enters the temple the next day and he enters the courts of the temple with whips and he drives out the moneylenders. He turns over tables. He declares it a place of corruption and speaks a blessing over it, that it would be a, a house of prayer. It's an act of justice. He's saying, those who have oppressed the vulnerable, caused harm to people seeking to meet with God, who have exploited others for their own financial gain. Jesus, this king, hears the cry of the oppressed and acts. Just days before the cross, Jesus is showing us the type of king he is. And it's a kingdom where people like Rose have all the power. When the poor are to be protected, when the vulnerable are to be welcomed into family. Looking at the world around us, so much pain and suffering. Looking into our own world, inner world and seeing the ambivalence and broken, brokenness in our hearts. In all of it, the only thing that makes sense is the cross. I'm going to read um, an extract from a sermon um, that a, a great pastor, theologian Fleming Rutledge, gave on Palm Sunday um, quite a few years ago. She has an amazing Southern American accent, which I'm in no way going to try and replicate, but imagine it with that, if you will. She says this, My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength, I desire to convey to you that this week, while the world goes about its business, the meaning of existence is revealed to those who have eyes to see. The true significance of the headlines comes to light as Jesus of Nazareth goes his solitary way. Today in the reading of the Passion, Thursday night as Jesus eats his last supper and goes forth to be betrayed, Friday noon as he hangs exposed and naked on the cross and pours out his life, God is acting. In the events of this week, the cries of those who suffer have been heard by the one who could, the only one who can, the only one who will deliver on his promise that there will be a happy morning, but it only comes, it only comes by means of his death. Let us follow him then this week to the foot of his cross.
Let us come together in mind and heart to behold our Lord as he gives himself up for the sake of the whole world. Let us come in heart and soul and mind, in faith and in trust, to confess that truly this man is the Son of God. This week is an invitation to both examine ourselves and encounter a God whose love is more than enough. The same Paul who wrote those verses in Romans, what a wretched person that I am, he also wrote these words in Ephesians. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And you have to hear those words, not in the way it's so easy for us to just sort of quickly and skim over them, but to hear it with the awe and wonder, the gratitude that Paul felt. This gift of grace, so rich and deep, so incredibly freely given, And in the depths of this incredible grace, we are redeemed from all captivity, redeemed from the bondage of the law, redeemed from our need to get right with God on our own merits. We are set free from shame, healed of our brokenness and forgiven from every sinful act and thought, every moment of pride, all of our waywardness. And it is all grace. Paul is almost euphoric in the face of what God has done for him because he knows God has done what he could not do himself. Look what the Lord has done. So that's the invitation today to bring our whole selves before the Lord and to look what the Lord has done. We, we've been talking a lot recently about kind of getting in the river and, and being in the, in the um, being putting ourselves in the position to encounter Jesus, to meet with the Lord. And, and that's the invitation today, this week, to not hide from the bits that are difficult, to bring our ambivalence to the cross, to put our whole selves in the river, to make space in our hearts, to feel the depths of the anguish, so that we might also know the soaring joy of the victory.